2: This is True Crime Garage and this is part three of When a Killer Calls.
0: Always very excited to have Mr. John Douglas here with us in the garage. This is the third time that you've come and graced us with your presence, and we are excited as we always are to chat with you. And today we're talking about your new book, When a Killer Caused. This is a fascinating story from the mid-80s that took place in South Carolina with a very, very horrific case and... Tragic case, but one that really not only will appeal to our listeners and appeals to me as kind of a case study, but the the criminal, Larry Gene Bell, just fascinating and absolutely bizarre his crimes that he committed and the way that he not just committed these crimes, but also emotionally tortured his victims and their families. Right. Well, Mr. Douglas, one thing that I found incredibly fascinating about the details of your new book, it really hones in on a lot of the communications that Larry Gene Bell felt were necessary to him when committing the crimes that, that he did. And some killers communicate with the media, some with law enforcement. From your experience, mm-hmm. why do you think some choose to communicate with the media and others choose to communicate with law enforcement.
3: Uh, yeah. I've had cases. Uh, I interviewed uh, uh, Dennis Schrader, the BTK strangler, and uh, it, it was just a, a, they're all looking for power. All these crimes are a sense of, of power and control and uh, someone like uh, uh, Dennis Schrader or the Zodiac, it's uh, they want more than just local attention. They want national, national you know, attention. Um, in the case of, that that i just wrote about when a killer calls i never really had a case you know like this before uh because this the signature uh the that's an aspect of the case that is not necessary to perpetrate the case but it's a need that the subject has and and his need was to sadistically torture the families uh of uh, sherry Faye smith uh there were two victims involved but sherry Faye smith giving him initially false hope that uh, that their daughter was still alive. And then uh, having the victim write a last will and testament uh, that he would mail to the family. And Sherry Faye Smith is is now saying goodbye to her family. It was just an unbelievable family, the religious mm-hmm. and the faith you know, that they had. I mean, it, it was emotionally draining for me and everyone else involved, you know, in the, uh, in the case. Uh, but this guy, this guy then, uh, after the last will and, uh, and, testament, he sets up these communications. Initially he's disguising his voice and we send the, uh, the tapes of the FBI lab and they say he has some type of a, a monitoring device on the phone, uh, which began to tell us something about his background, his profile, uh, his, his intelligence so he was changing his voice as the case went on after a period of time he stopped using that uh that device because he was gaining confidence he just felt that he was uh, not you know not catchable no one would ever identify him but when this case kept evolving and kept going on and, and on uh and then I'm working with the families I'm working with a sister her sister named Dawn to use as a a bait really to get this guy to keep communicating with us because the more he communicates, the more we begin to learn about him. But it was very difficult in the eighties because we had to keep him on the phone for such a long period of time, up to 15, 15 uh, minutes before we can put a traps and trace. And he was well aware of that. So I had to work with the, with the, uh, the sister of Sherry Face Smith and basically kind of give it like, kind of like hostage negotiating skills. And, mm-hmm. and that is like, uh, paraphrase and restate the content that he's trying to, whatever he's tra- telling you, just keep like, uh, confirming that you understand what he's saying. But he was too sharp at that time. He, he would, he would, uh, uh, bail on us. But one of the worst things about this, I mean, it, it was, it was horrific was that the mother, uh, Received some of the calls as well as the sister Dawn and then the mother asked him the mother says that my daughter uh, knows she was going to die and Bell says yes uh, you know she did and I gave her a choice and she could pick uh, drug overdose gunshot or suffocation and your daughter selected suffocation and so what he did he proceeded to use duct tape while she was alive and duct taped her her head and then he waits he waits days for the body to uh, decompose uh, before he tells us, tells the family through now dawn, the other the other sister, where we can find find Sherry Faye Smith. And the reason that began that tells you something about him too, because he doesn't want to leave anything forensically for us to determine, like the cause of death, to locate any kind of hair and fiber evidence. But what we could see is that, and we and we knew about the duct tape just by the evidence as she, uh, uh, her hair, after he duct taped her head, he removed the duct tape because he didn't want to leave th- any fingerprints on the duct tape. And he uh, would end up cutting some of the hair on her head to, to totally remove the duct tape from us. So it was just, it was just an unbelievable case. And, and uh, to, to set up, um, uh, he stopped communicating with us. So that's, that was a problem. When I finally went down there, he stopped communicating with, with the police uh, with the, uh, the family I had to get him to talk I had to get him to get back on the phone so I, I sat down with the investigative reporter and told the investigative reporter uh, that I, I wanted her to uh, come up with a story where Sherry Fay is uh, is buried we want to have a memorials service and uh, I, I'm not gonna write it for you I can't do that as an agent but I want to you make it poetic and we're going to set up at the the gravesite, we're going to put a um, kind of a lectern, a white lectern with Shari Fay's picture on it. And uh, when I was at the house, I asked to see Shari Fay's bedroom. and dawn, her sister showed me the bedroom. and And in the bedroom were, were dozens upon dozens of of koala bears. And I started thinking in my brain, what can I what can I do here? What can I do? And I saw a small koala bear that was hanging from a string. And I took that. You pinch the shoulders, and it opens up. And I'm thinking, without telling anyone, I'm going to use this at the gravesite. I'm going to have Dawn, who now he was targeting Dawn, uh, the other sister, place that at the uh, uh, at the gravesite on a flower. And the hope is, uh, Nick, is that uh, he will uh, will pique his curiosity because we do know from the research that I conducted and my colleagues they like to collect souvenirs, mementos relative to the to the crime. So did all did all those things. Uh, unfortunately, from an investigative perspective, had no control over this. Uh, but she was buried very, very close to the road, if, and he would not take that kind of risk. But we were monitoring the vehicles, and we would catch him another way. But had we not caught him another way, that we talk about in, in the book, we would we would have come across him eventually because we had we had his license plate number. He stopped along with other cars, and we were recording all of those uh, uh, vehicles. And from him, once we would do, a, say, a criminal check, you know, on these people who were stopping, we would find with him that he had a history. He had a criminal history of attempted abduction early on in his life. He was involved in obscene uh, uh, telephone calls. He tried to abduct a, a nine-year-old girl, besides a uh, another teenager. So we would have got him sooner sooner than later, but uh, we got him other ways forensically.
0: One thing that I found incredibly fascinating, and I love when a, a great book comes out on a case, and particularly one that fits into this realm for me, where this is a case that I thought that I knew very well, and then I read your new book when a killer calls and figure out, eh, I only knew kind of the tip of the iceberg here. There's a lot to digest and a lot to take in from, your new book. Now, one thing I picked up while reading is that it almost appears to me in some bizarre way. And this is something I didn't know before that Larry was in love or in his, in his own bizarre way, thought he was in love with Sherry Fay Smith.
3: Yeah. he, He would say later on that he was stalking her. He, he came across her in a parking lot. And so he was kind of surveilling her And uh, on that particular day of the abduction, she was with a boyfriend, they just left a pool party. And we would find out later on that he was in that parking lot, he was watching them, they were kissing. And then then, uh, after that, they said goodbye to each other, her and her boyfriend, um, uh, Richard, and he tailed her home. He follows her home very, very closely. Had she pulled into a driveway and pulled her vehicle up to the house, he never would have pulled into the driveway. Her house sat back about 200 yards from the mailbox. She stops her vehicle at the mailbox to check the mail. And at that point in time is when he pulls up behind her, his modus operandi. We we knew he had a gun. We later would find out he had a gun. We we assumed he would have something like that to gain that kind of control. He also had a a camera and he would take, uh, was taking pictures. Uh, of her. And he just comes across as a nice guy. And the guy, you know, people, they, they look at criminals. They think they could, they look a certain way. He, this guy looks like your, your next door neighbor. He could be any, he could be anyone. But once he got her, uh, close to the, uh, to his vehicle. And that's when, you know, when he grabbed her, uh, but he had this, this fantasy and, uh, but the fantasy you see can only last a short period of time because from the point of abduction to the point of killing, uh, uh her was only uh, several hours several hours and and so he he had to perpetuate this and that's why then he shifted over to the sister and then uh first he was very very nice very very polite to her but then he goes out and he abducts and kills a a nine-year-old child who's playing in front of her her uh, residence Uh, the family just moved into this trailer park and she's out in the yard very boldly pulls up in front and grabs this nine-year-old child Takes off with her to get a description of the vehicle, but not enough, uh, a good enough description um, to where we can identify him. And he waits and waits and waits. And then he calls up the first family, the Smith family, and Dawn. And he tells Dawn, he says, Do You know, you remember that abduction the other day, that girl, Deborah Helmick? And she says, Yes. She says, Well, and he gives her these directions, the directions where we can find uh, the body. And like, her sister. He waited for the body to be in advanced stages of decomposition before uh, he gave us uh, the, the location. You know, uh, you know of her. But all this began, and we did a profile. Um, the police department, Lexington Police Department, it's tremendous, t- uh, tremendous department. Both the, the sheriff and the under sheriff attended the FBI National Academy, which is an eleven-week program. And the FBI trains about 1,000 police officers a year worldwide. And so they, they took classes. One of the classes they took was in, in, in my area in criminal profiling, criminal psychology. Like so many cops, once they go back to their department, they'll think they'll never have a case like this. And sure enough, here they get hit by this case, and then they they contact us. And we don't, for your listeners... Um, we don't always go out on cases. In fact, most of the cases are kind of older cases when we get them, old dog cases. But if we're involved in a case where the, the offender is killing and now he's killing again, and you probably want to kill one more time if we don't identify him, we're going out. It's just like the Atlanta child killing case. I mean, I, I was receiving calls early on uh, developing an analysis, but there was so many killings, so now I have to go on site. I got I got to see for myself and work with the investigators you know on uh, you know on site so this department they were they were very 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 open uh, to suggestions and to proactive techniques uh, this is like 19 you know 85 Nick uh, in June uh, 19 you know of my background uh, in 1983 mm-hmm. the end of 83 November December I nearly died on the Green River murder case I was just burned out had viral encephalitis and. Came home in, a, in a, a wheelchair, so I really lost my confidence, and and uh, I didn't know if I, I, I would miss a beat, and, and so by now in 1984, I'm get, I nearly had to die before I could get help. So now, now they give me they give me agents t- uh, from the field who I'm selecting or good investigators to train them, but it takes a while to, to train them. So so here, this case comes up now in mid. Mid eighty five. Now I got to go out. I got to go on site and provide on site consultation. I'm going to bring a, a relatively new agent, a good agent, but a relatively new agent in my program. You know, uh, you know, with the you know, with me. Uh, the, the profile that we did turned out to be very, very accurate. I think we we just missed the age. We thought he'd be between the late twenties to early thirties. He was about thirty four, thirty five, which isn't which isn't bad. Everything else about him. Uh, his, we, we felt he ha- would have some kind of electrical background. He was an electrician, body type. We felt uh, he would be, would be a slovenly uh, type. We felt he was obsessive compulsive. Reasoning for that is because you can tell when he was calling the family, uh, he would follow a script. If he was asked a question in the middle of his, his uh, lecture to say to Dawn or the mother, it would throw him off. So then he had to repeat, had, had to re- repeat himself and so he was, would be this obsessive compulsive types, kind of a guy who you go in, you go into his garage you'd see, you see, uh, he'd have outline where the screwdriver hangs or where the, the hammer hangs. And he would outline that in his clothes. It would be very orderly and, uh, in his closet and his personal p- appearance would look the same or his vehicle. And we went, we were, uh, we felt a guy like this could not have any kind of a, uh, normal relationship with women that he probably was married, previously uh, married. Uh, In the past, which he's turned out he he was, uh, he he was previously married, had had a a son, the criminal history had that, as I mentioned earlier, he had, uh, you know, all of that. So you can do the profile, but then you have to really, you know, in fact, when I just, when I retired from the Bureau, in in the last couple of years, I I was kind of getting away from the demographic profile. Nick, I I wanted more to get into proactive uh, techniques. I wanted the public to know I wanted the public to know more about uh, characteristics or the behavioral patterns, because if, if you develop a profile, then you release it publicly, you're trying to develop leads, but say you miss the age. You're saying the guy's a, a high school dropout the guy may have a col- college degree, but everything else may fit. Well, the person may say, gee, everything fits this guy who I know, but the education is off. But the, so I, I was getting away from, from that. Uh, uh, but focusing more on pre-offense behavior and post-offense, uh, post-offense behavior. What was the behavior leading up to the crime? What would have happened to him after the crime? Like this case, we told the police he will be changing his personal appearance, we believe, uh, which he did do. Uh, and uh, so things like that. And then what can I do uh, to maybe cause the subject to inject himself into the police investigation, to uh, go to the gravesite? Uh, I had a keep him contacting the family, which was very stressful. Uh, Mr. Smith. I was kind of hemming and hawing about what I was going to uh, be, uh, what was on my mind, how I wanted to use the, the, the daughter as kind of a lure. And, and uh, John, tell me what, 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 what's on your mind? What do you think? What are you thinking? Tell telling me. So well, Mr. Smith, and I said, we're dealing with somebody here. Who is, he's not the type who's going to pull into this driveway. And, and and hurt anyone he's not that type but i can see what, what's happening here is that he's transferring you know his you know you know his fondness his fantasy towards dawn here and and i, I need dawn and we need dawn to uh to lure him in and to get him to communicate uh, to communicate with us and uh, and then he agreed he agreed with me and and dawn another one' just, very religious family uh she's a, a uh, uh she's part of church in in, in south carolina and uh, she preaches has a beautiful voice she sings uh the sherry Faye, beautiful girl here it is on a friday uh, may 31st she's graduating sunday from high school she's going to sing the national anthem uh, at her uh, graduation I, I i communicate with the family to this day i mean all these years and they set up a fund for sherry face smith that I, I participate in raising money for scholarship for because she wanted to go into uh, into music so it's just emotionally emotionally you know i just had my physical the other day and, and, and the doctor said how do you how do you do sleeping john how do you sleep and i said i can't i can't sleep i have I, I have a very difficult time sleeping here i said if it was me i'd get up at f- three or four o'clock in the war- morning. But my, my wife <laughs> wouldn't appreciate it <laughs> because <laughs> I just think of, I'm just always thinking of things or cases that are that are on my desk or, or work uh, uh, that, uh, uh, that, that I'm currently involved in.
0: I mean, the job, your career almost took your life. I remember reading in one of your earlier <laughs> books where you said you were working so much that you almost prayed that you would you know, yeah. you would try to think about the cases up to the point of falling asleep to yes. hope that you would dream about the cases so you could continue working while you're sleeping.
3: Yeah, I, I, I would, uh, I would go to bed. It was quiet. Everything's quiet, and I have a, a trying to come up with ideas. Help me, help me uh, come up with uh, ideas. And, and I, if I kept a pad of paper, and I, if I wake up and I thought of something, I would write it down because I'm afraid I, I was going to forget about it. You know, what's interesting, Nick, is that. Uh, People, they watch television, they see the shows and everything. But the degree today, well, the new degree is kind of forensic psychology. But there are so many people, so many young people, too. Uh, and the uh, majority of the my audiences, too, when I go out and do public speaking, uh, 89% are, are women. They're interested in this field. But I have to tell them, this job can be hazardous to your health. And, and it's not mm-hmm. just me, it's to the other other people that were in in my, in my unit, because you really you really have to throw yourself into it, understanding and walking in the shoes of the subject as well as the, of the victim. And you're not you're not working one case at a time. At any given time, uh, the agents that in my unit we were doing a thousand cases a year uh, for 12, 12 agent profiles in and myself, and, and we had I also were training Secret Service was training. Uh, training them they, you would think that they had a program they didn't even have a program uh, like this you would think uh, they, they would have trained secret service the uh, bureau of alcohol tobacco and, and firearms the volume of work and the nature of the work and that's why right, leading up to the time where I nearly died I'm I'm up in New York training a couple hundred cops and and I know my material very well so my mouth is talking but my brain is thinking of these cases, I got to go up to Alaska, where a guy named Rob I know would later on his, his name was Robert Hanson. Uh, the Onsub is up there, uh, abducting women and then uh, hunting them down like wild animals. He would fly up into the wilderness, strip stripping down naked and hunt them, hunt them down. I got to go to um, Seattle, King County, to work on the Green River murder case and have all these other cases. So I have an anxiety attack, Nick. I think I'm going to. Uh, I'm having a heart attack, and the the audience, because I, I know my material, so my mouth is moving, but I'm sweating, my heart's pounding, and, and, and I, I'm saying to myself, regroup, gotta regroup. So I regrouped, and no one really detected anything as far as I know. But when I came back to Quantico, I knew uh, something's gonna happen to me. I may die, something bad so i took out income protection insurance i took out extra life insurance i didn't tell anyone didn't tell my family or anything but the day i had to go out on the green river murder case uh i said goodbye to my wife at home and then she's a school teacher and i drove over to say goodbye to her again and uh, why why are you going out there Why, why are you doing this i i said i have to uh they're asking for on-site consultation i have to train this new these two new agents they assigned me to, to my unit and, and you don't look well your eyes i said well yeah i have a tremendous headache and what was happening nick was my brain was sw- swelling up and my apparently later on the doctors say my immune system was just so so low and when i when i came back in a wheelchair from, this, uh, uh, from the Green River murder camp. In fact, I was gonna be buried, I'm a veteran as well, and I was gonna be buried at the veteran uh, cemetery they were making plans because my uh, I collapsed back at the hotel room. And as you know, you, you, uh, you probably read Mindhunter and I know you did, and, and uh, I, I thought I was getting a flu and my brain was swelling. And I told the agents, it's, it's Tuesday night, I'll see you Friday when we head back to Quantico and uh, back to DC and uh that and they said okay we'll see you friday and I, this is what i told them what to do when i go back to the task force well that night i collapsed and i remained on that floor until friday until they kicked down the door But when they found me my body was in a frog-like uh, position and every they said every 30 seconds to a minute my body start shaking you know just trembling like crazy and my face would become distorted Emergency people came. uh, First responders. My body temperature was between 104, 107. And what happened was, it it, my brain split in my right uh, temporal lobe, uh, which would cause temporary. uh, I was amazing how I got over this, but temporary paralysis. Uh, But they thought for sure that I was going to, um, I was going to, uh, you know, die uh, from that. And and, uh, it it made me, though Nick, it made me a better leader, a good leader, because, because. uh, the people that do this work, they throw themselves into it. And when I would see people in my unit who who are uh, uh, giving every drop of, of sweat and blood to help others, I would tell them to go home. And then they, they start to go home, but with the cases. They said, no, you leave the cases here. But you see, in the Bureau, it's so, it is so bureaucratic. Uh, you're not supposed to allow agents to do that. You, know, you got to sign in and sign mm-hmm. out, and, and so I would break all the, you know, all the uh, the rules, but it just made me a better a better person here. But I get I keep getting caught in the, the abyss. I keep uh, uh, I I would go out to the cemetery where I was going to be buried, I, I, and I look for my date when I feel like oh here it goes. I, I can't. I got. I can't. I have no control over what's going on. I have just so much, so much, so many cases and, and so many calls coming in uh, from whether it's profile, I was also a hostage negotiator, so these young kids, that's when I go out, I tell them, I say you know, this is not like the, you know, like a 60 minute show or something that you're watching on television, right. and, and when you see this this death and dying, and it's not just even murders, it's victims of rape, uh, and these child abductions, child, child killings, and then the impact, how it it Has on the families, and I have families, Nick, that, and this this is unbelievable. Who want me to tell them in the case of say a homicide, how their their daughter, how their child died, uh, and, uh, what did the killer specifically do? Did my child suffer, uh, or did she die quickly? Did my child put up a fight? Uh, uh, and and at first, I wouldn't, I, w- I couldn't do it. But then they get mad at, at you, and it's just like when family members—they want to go in the morgue. And I, I, I didn't realize this until I was working with victims of violent crime. They want to see for themselves what what took place to, to their to the loved one. And so you think you're protecting them, but no, you can't go in there. But they get angry. No, they want to see for themselves. They want to they want to to just to see what uh, their loved one uh, you know went through and, and, and suffered. So. It's, it's emotionally uh, draining. It's just, uh, you know, and, and when you work so many cases, it's, it has a cumulative effect, you know, on you. So I had to go see a shrink when I, when I came back, kind of like Tony Soprano going to, to a shrink. Cause, uh, <laughs> so uh, I, uh, and, and the, the test they gave me, they said, you burn the candle at both ends, you're this didn't get, you'd get, a, you could have a heart attack. And I was exercising, but I was exercising to the point exhausting myself, just trying to kind of numb my feelings, uh, which uh, I, I couldn't do. I really, I really couldn't do. So when they finally gave me help, just because they give you help doesn't mean uh, that you could uh, train somebody overnight. It takes about two years to train somebody. And like in any profession, it takes about five years before they really start getting good you know, at uh, at what they do. And I'm talking a lot, Nick, <laughs> yeah. gave
0: me a fine. and you're yeah. right. I'm still trying to get good at what I do, but it's, you know, you didn't yeah. have to pinch yourself to know that you were human. It, it's, yeah. it's your heart and it's your soul that really infected your brain. And, and the stress is what almost took you down because I can only imagine you're sitting there, you know, you're being moved all over the country to, to take on these different adventures. But here you are in New York and trying to teach in, in what, you know, better, you know, inside you're better equipping these law enforcement officers to, to increase their toolbox and do a better job, become more efficient at what they do. So you are helping, but the whole time in the back of your mind, you're going, what am I doing here? If I'm not in Alaska, then we're losing lives that I'm, I'm not saving lives. And then while in Alaska dealing with, uh, bad Bob Hansen, you're in the back of your mind. You're going, why am I not in Washington? There are people getting at a crazy, at yes. an alarming rate uh, in 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 the state of Washington. At the same time, so I, I mean, I right. cannot imagine the 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 stress and, and the anxiety that 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 can cause. While your subscription is active.
3: Well, then, Nick. Other thing, other thing too. Nick is, and it's kind of like that. It was in the Mind Hunter Netflix uh, series. Is is that uh, I got involved in this? I just wanted to be a good instructor. Uh, I was the youngest agent when I came back to Quantico. I had, I had about seven years in the field, had four years in the military, seven years in the field, hostage negotiator, uh, also uh, uh, bank robbery uh, coordinator. I remember on the SWAT team, a couple of advanced degrees at that point in time. But I was the youngest one and I, auditing the classes, these instructors, they didn't have their facts right. And they were being challenged by th- those National Academy students in the class who worked the Charles Manson case with David Berkowitz the son of Sam. So I just wanted to be a good instructor. And so that's I came up with the idea of go into the prisons and let's talk to the, to the experts. And then, then you have uh, Dr. Ann Burgess joins us from Boston college. And she was also at the university of Penn. She was at both uh, u- uh, universities came and, and to uh, her job. It's, it's, diff- it's not like uh, Netflix, how they, uh, the the right. show, how she's telling us how to do interviews. Now, she's basically an academic, telling us how to develop the academic instruments for uh, the interviews. As far as the interviews itself, now we're doing that, or developing the proactive, you know, techniques. You know, we're doing, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so the other thing, and we didn't have the blessing. I didn't have the blessing of necessarily the FBI either in, in the early days. I mean, if Hoover was alive, he, this could never even have been accomplished. Right. At all, he never would have done this, uh, and and then even then after he died in 1972, uh, there was still, you know, what is this uh, behavioral science, this BS uh, kind of stuff, you know, <laughs> you know, the, you know, why are you doing that? Why why are you going to these prisons? Why, why are you doing these, you know, these interviews? So you didn't have the support necessarily from the bureau, and, and then you, when you go out to the cops initially too, it's like they didn't trust us because we were FBI and. They thought in the days of Hoover, you know, we had, we had, um, the agency would dominate the police or take uh, the police would work a case. And in comes the Bureau to swoop, maybe swoop up the, uh, uh, the case from the, from the local police. And, and, and so I wanted to change that. And, and by the time I left the Bureau, it was interesting. It was a situation where, we got so tight with the local police, and really, then our agents in charge of our offices out in the field office. So, say a um, a case would go down, they were calling us directly, and and you tell them you have to go through headquarters, the Criminal Investigative Division. No, we got we want to talk directly t- to you and your unit. You have to go, and so eventually we was okay. Here's what you do, or here, special agent in charge of the Cleveland FBI. You got a kidnapping here. You're going to go before the press. This is what you say. This is what you don't say. And then headquarters would would get on us like, "What the hell are you doing? Telling right. the agent in charge what to do?" Well, he, he's asking us. He, he's asking us. So that that uh, caused a lot of stress. Just see you know how you're being you know being you know treated within the agency then outside the agency. But, but then we as time went on. Uh, we are pretty uh, welcome and, and and always give credit to the local police. They're the ones, and the police, the police, or if it's an FBI case, the agents or whatever agency good, you're going to solve it. I'm I, just a tool in your toolbox that I may be able to help you. I may not be able to uh, to help you. And uh, people don't realize too; it's not just these kind of cases. I work public in my unit, public corruption cases, foreign counterintelligence. We did did uh, you know assessments. In, in those kind of cases and arsons and bombings, product tampering, you know, the Tylenol case out of Chicago. So all kinds of cases, product tampering, all, the, uh, you know, all types of cases that we did. So we had a great, uh, it was a great, a great bunch uh, of people that we had doing a lot of, a lot of work back then.
0: We were lucky enough to have Dr. Ann Burgess on just, uh, to- Few weeks ago. Um, oh, is that right? But, yeah, it was fascinating to talk with her. Um, but she uh, is,
3: yeah, yeah her hair is a victim uh, with the victim. She did, uh, you know, did a lot. She's amazing. I mean, for her age, and she's still going, going at you know, added. Uh, but, but like I said, when she came down, uh, it's really funny because the, the Wendy character, uh, you know, it, it, it is uh, she's as, as you know is a nurse forensic forensic nursing. Yep. But, and they have this like like a psychologist in the the mind hunter the mind hunter uh series and uh and and then her character is a lesbian and is not a lesbian she's married with several you know several children but I did a presentation with her at Boston College up there and and uh, they were really thrilled with her that she got you know the you know this uh you know this attention although they Hollywoodized they Hollywoodized her role they yeah. Hollywoodized Mike Holden Ford, the, the the actors, you know, playing like my role, or and uh, everyone's w- hoping that there'll be a season three. The actors mm-hmm. want a season three. Uh, it's up to David Fincher, the, the director, uh, and uh, whether or not there'll be. It, it was supposed to be a five-part series, f- five parts, and, and uh, here they ended with two. But they took a year. They took a year uh, for each each uh, of those ten episodes and in a year for the nine. And they were filmed in the Pittsburgh, uh, up in the Pittsburgh area. And uh, so they had to all relocate. Jonathan Groff, who played my role, uh, Holden Ford, he, he lives up in that area, so there was no problem with him. But Fincher is just so obsessive compulsive that in season two, the first episode, uh, the actors were telling me this. So there was a barbecue scene where uh, Bill Tench, like my partner, He's barbecuing, flipping hamburgers and hot dogs in his backyard, and the neighbors are over, and they start asking him questions. What do you do? I'm at the behavioral science unit, and I do interviews. and They get really engrossed in that. They repeated that uh, 74, 75 times, that one scene of mm. flipping hot dogs and hamburgers, 75. And uh, some actors can't take it, but uh, they, can't, they can't do that. Uh, that's why the they, – uh, I had a girlfriend in, uh, season one, season one, uh, the actress who had, uh, had, uh, they, she just lasted one year, uh, Holden Ford thought he was going to have this relationship, you know, and the, and they would live happily ever after. And I was, it was a great actress, but it's just, can you, can you be that it's really strict, you know, and, uh, over and over to get it. And that's why these, he makes these unbelievable uh, movies or house of cards, you know, was amazing series on uh mm-hmm. you know, on netflix
0: well in season two there's that th- the big case obviously is the atlanta child killings and right. if we do make it to season three i mean you lived the life what would be yeah. the big case would there be one big case or would it be do you think it'd be more like season one i know you're not fully in charge here but yeah no uh, <laughs> yeah but would it be more like season one where it's a lot of uh smaller cases and uh, smaller involvement. I
1: had very little input.
3: Surprisingly, the actors were surprised themselves I Had very little input from the writer at all. Uh, uh, the whole McCallany came down here, uh, stayed with me at my house and everything. he really dives into it. John the who plays me, I didn't meet him until after, you know, after the fact. And, and, uh, and there, if you're using Mindhunter as a guide, well, Mindhunter I, I thought I was going to be a one book wonder. I can't, so that, so I only could touch on the cases, like mm-hmm. Atlanta child killing. There were so many other, and just like the Larry Jean Bell case, you know, you'll touch on it, but you won't go deep. You don't have time to go deep, you know, deep into it like you can in a, a, a single book. But there are so many cases. I mean, they could do the Alaskan case. Uh, they could do the the trail side Killer. Mm-hmm. Um, they could do John John Wayne Gacy. They could do. uh, T- Ted, you know Ted Bundy. They could mm-hmm. do. Uh, I mean, there's just so you know, it, you know, so many uh, of them. They could do Zodiac. Doesn't have to solve the Zodiac. Cause it's really not solved. But it, you could do a case like that. You could take a go into do a, ty- a Tylenol case or, or a Unabomber uh, case. There's just and there's so many other smaller cases that they you you could do. I mean, those who've read or know my involved in an in Atlanta case. It didn't happen like like that where. I'm checking into a motel and, and the woman checking me in is uh, ends up, uh, you know, inviting me out. I think in the, in the show, it's like, I'm going to go out on a date or something with her, but she ends up bringing me to where the, uh, where the, many of the victims uh, family are waiting to, to try to get my involvement, you know, you know, in get involved in that case. It didn't go uh, down like that. And if, and if anything, uh, when I went down on the case, I mean, I, I, they raised hell with me. And uh, there was a case where I, I the only case I think the only maybe the only Asian who was censured, censured and, and then got a letter of commendation and an incentive award <laughs> for the same case. You know, they hate you. Then they love you. Have a love hate relationship. You know, uh, you you with you. They they hated me when I came back from England. I was training in the military. I'm down in Virginia and talking to people in corrections. And here a hand goes up. What about this guy? They just arrested in Atlanta. Uh, and I said, well, I said, I, I said, if it's, if he turns out to be, um, uh, the land child killer, he's, he's going to be good for many. He's good for mm-hmm. many." Well, it, the crap hit the fan, man. I, right. The bureau looks at that as I'm a spokesperson now for the agent charge of the investigation. I, I thought I was going to be fired. And then, so then as the case started going and, um, Moving along, did the assessment, the profile, and, and then uh, got involved in the, uh, you know, with, with the prosecutors and coached the prosecutors and and then uh, criticized the way the case was going. Uh, like like one day, they, for a, a hair and fiber uh, expert from the defense took the stand and looked like the John F. Kennedy, uh, the junior. Good looking guy. Didn't know shit from Shinola about hair and forensics, but the, the, the jurors loved him. They uh, they they, lo- they loved good how good he was. He was speaking to them. And so the next that afternoon, they had this big conference, you know, and they go around the room. Did you hear that guy you know, talk about hair and fiber rep? And he didn't know what the hell he was talking about. And going around like the horn around this big table. What do you think, John? I said, you guys are losing the case. He said, what? You're, lo- you're losing the case. He may not know. You know what he's talking about, but you guys from, from the uh, bureau and from a uh, GBI, George your bureau investigation, you're so damn technical. I have no idea what you're even saying. It doesn't even make sense to me. And I know half this, uh, as much as at least as a jurors, you'll, and so they, so they would throw me out of there They, they would you know, send me back to Quantico. Then I tell them, this one time I told them, Hey, I said, just, just so you know, Wayne Williams is going to get sick in the courtroom one week from today. I'll oh, get out of here. I go back to Quantico. Williams gets sick in the courtroom. And, and uh, I told him before why he will get sick in the courtroom. And then the next thing you know, get your ass back here. So I had to go back to I spent five months down there and then uh, got involved in coaching the prosecutor, great great guy, Jack Mallard, on how to how to cross-examine Williams because I knew he would take the stand. That, and, and Al Binder, who was the defense attorney, great—he is a great guy. I got to meet him really I, when we were, you know, when he wasn't cross-examining me or anybody else. Uh, I, I knew uh, he would put Williams on the stand as, because they were losing. But I knew Williams couldn't take it—you know—take any cross-examination. So I worked with Jack, Jack Mallard, and he did a tremendous, tremendous job and, and, and broke him down understand I know you've got that FBI profiler over there and he's pointing in my, my direction you're not going to get me to fit it and, and your listeners may know that right now they they're doing an investigation down there because they're trying to d- determine you know he was convicted of two when we were down there we thought maybe eight to ten were related the other ones we, we couldn't see a relationship here but the, but all those cases 28 26 cases were closed or closed and Uh, by the police. So they are looking, the parents are demanding that the police look at these other cases, uh, which I I was told they were, you know, they were doing.
0: Yeah. And that has always fascinated me as well, because I kind of feel like, and and this is just very basic psychology and very, my limited understanding. Of course, I'm no expert here, but I look at a case like that and I see, I don't know if, if Wayne Williams it doesn't seem likely to me that the female victims are his.
3: You're exactly right. And
0: it doesn't seem likely to me either that maybe the white victims are his either. Um, right. He seemed to play within a certain sandbox, if you will. And those ones were out of that box. And, and I don't know that unless it was some kind of learning curve or, you know, that he was working on, maybe there, there is some kind of mix up there, but, but it does, it looks Highly likely to me that there may have been another serial offender operating sure. roughly about the same time
3: right. Every year I was down there I was looking every year in Atlanta, they have between ten to twelve uh, child killings uh, down there. And a lot of those are even domestic uh, domestic uh, related mm-hmm. uh, types of uh, types of cases. See at the time, though, at the time when this that case was going on, all the parents wanted to be on that list, to be on the list, uh, even though some of the, the way they were, the kids were killed were totally different than the way uh, I believe the ones that we selected, how Williams was responsible. But they, they wanted to be on the list for, uh, because there was compensation involved uh, with uh, Sammy Davis Jr. was down there, Frank Sinatra putting on uh, a big uh, – uh, presentation singing uh, you know, singing and raising money you know they raised millions millions of dollars and uh, which they would then give to the families so everyone one that child even though and no one's gonna stop them they compensated. but I knew darn well and you, you mentioned Nick those two females like I remember one Angela Lanier no it, how, you know, how she was killed panties were stuffed in her mouth uh, uh, she's it's ligature strangulation totally you know, totally, uh, you know, different,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and you uh, yeah, and some of the other ones too had like m- multiple stab wounds. Uh, the big thing with me was in that case was to say that the the offender would be black. Statistically, it's white, mm-hmm. but but generally, when you look at crimes, you you uh, crimes are intra intra racial. Now you do you will have an offender cross over. Uh, say he was targeting uh, uh, black it mean, will go with white but his, they have a we call a preferential victim preferential age a preferential uh you know sex or even a look a certain look we had one in the midwest one time was women with red hair so so there's this is, you know this preference so with with him yeah he was he thought of himself with yeah he had, he was a ham operator he had a little radio station he could only broadcast a few blocks in his in his neighborhood uh, he thought he was going to develop the next uh, Jackson five. Uh, But there was mishandling on that case by the, uh, even by us, it was, uh, it was mishandled uh, when he, when he was stopped on that bridge, Uh, they could have taken him in. They they could have taken, taken him in for uh, questioning. They look in the car, they see uh, ligatures in the back of the, the back seat of of the car here. You know, it's like one or two o'clock, you know, in the morning you know when they a car stopped, they were splashing the, you know, in the water, uh, but they didn't do it. And then the the interview that took place. I was down there. but I didn't get to do the interview. But uh, they were way too hard. They were way too aggressive. Uh, you know, with, uh, you know, with him on, on an interview, and just by looking, he, 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 like, it looked like he wanted to talk. And he kind of hung, or, even hung around the office. Uh, you know, afterwards, it's just, it, it's just you know, the interview and some people are good at it and some people are, are, are not and when you look at a case say like Georgia this this case or, or you look at uh, you look at Larry Jean Bell mm-hmm. from a book I'm going mean, to killer calls uh, why will he talk I mean well he faces the death penalty he, he's a child killer and child killers are low in the totem pole in prison they, they oftentimes you have to segregate them because they're out to get him You know, so what can I do? You know, what, you know, I'm not going to do an interrogation. I'm not going to do an an interview. I want to have a conversation, a conversation with them. But I have to, you have to provide some type of a face saving uh, scenario. You have to give them a way out, give them an excuse, an excuse, uh, whether there's like another side of the personality, they have like multiple personality, they are insane, or, or sometimes you have to totally. Investigators may not like this, but you have to almost project the blame onto the victim that the victim was a seducer and you panic, you know, to to get the confession, you know, you know, out of the person to put put in there doing it. That's what you're trying to you're trying to uh, do. So um, so mistakes were made, but to clear all of those cases uh, was wrong, in my opinion a lot of people's opinion
2: which
0: is so bizarre the psychology of it because you almost sitting across from the killer at the table you almost have to empathize with the stress that the the criminal put on themselves by committing these acts and the and the choices and reactions that they had to make in the heat of the moment you almost have to empathize with that where we have a criminal like larry jean bell and wayne williams who are incapable of empathizing with the people that they are killing it's it's just right. a it's a it's a weird bizarre situation
3: yes yeah, it's, it's really it's you you you're, you're portraying even uh false you know empathy uh whether it's you know whether it's Bell you know I, what, what I got involved in the interview I wasn't supposed to mm-hmm. you coach others but they when to bring them into the room where I am I, and the agent uh Ron Walker who came with me and, and it was funny they the the uh, Donnie Myers, they call them solicitors down here, not prosecutors, and right. he said, you know, these boys here, you know, these boys are from the FBI, and they profiled you, Larry, to a T. They profiled you, every, they, everything about you came true, true. And, and Bell's just looking at us, you know, and then they just leave. They leave Bell with us in, in this room, and uh, it was this was not planned. They had him for hours and hours, uh, the police did, trying to interview him. They, he really never fessed up to anything, and so sat him down on the couch and just coincidentally, I happened to be wearing a, I a, got a called like two in the morning. We were down there, you know, they got this guy now and, and, and Larry Jean Bell and I was I put on his kind of whitish pants and a white shirt. It looked clinical and, and it turned out to be was pretty good. It wasn't, it wasn't done purposely. And so I'm sitting right in front of him on like a table, coffee table. Uh, and uh, I, I just kind of give him a historical view of, of what, we do. And, and what I found in, uh, in those prison interviews, it's like, uh, people, Larry, who I spoke to, you know, I, I never use the word murder, killed or any that kind of stuff, you know, to do that. But they, I said, they tell me it's, it's almost like, you know, two different sides of them. There's, there's a side that good side and a bad side. And they, and when they perpetrate the crime, they know there's, they did it, but it's like, it's like a dream, like they're almost like in a dreamlike state. And I go, I do this long, uh, I go on and on and on and he's and he's just looking at me nodding with me mm-hmm. and then and I I say when did you start feeling bad about this case uh Larry I mean it's like, and and he said and he's just staring at me he says when I saw uh the, the funeral and I saw the newspaper articles and pictures of the family at the cemetery and, and uh, that's when I felt bad you see so I mean, why and then I, I sh- shift from that it, and I get into this, you know, this side, it could be two sides. And then as close as he would come to confession was the, he says, all I know is that the, the good Larry Jean Bell couldn't have done something like this, but the bad Larry Jean Bell, you know, could, could have uh, done that. And so that was as close as we came. And then I presented him uh, in front of, of Mrs. Smith and Dawn, and I, I coached him a little bit to tell him, when I mean, you hear him say, I know it's you, I know it's you, I, know, I recognize your voice. And, and um, I did did that, and, and he did the same routine, good versus the bad. Good, good Larry Jean Bell couldn't have done this, but the bad Larry Jean Bell could have. And He would go to trial. The evidence was just overwhelming. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, I'm not going to tell the audience of how they got how it got a really good lead. I'll leave that part, right. uh, part out because it was really interesting how we you know got on to him.
0: Did you have to testify against Bell?
3: Y- yes, yeah, I, I did. And uh uh good prosecutor, he uh, uh got me on the stand. I talked about the interviews. You know, there wasn't really much he you know he could get me on you know on there. And uh, uh afterwards we uh you know we talked hey you're pretty good <laughs> you were good on the stand all those other you know uh, BS stuff, but yeah, he's trying to. He was trying to save him from the death penalty, and and I knew, and I told the prosecutor, the solicitor, I I said the only thing they're going to try here is an insanity defense. So so what what you're going to see starting day one, you're going to see this guy, uh you know, flipping out in the courtroom in front of the jurors and everyone to show to show that he's in, that's his only chance. I mean, we got His goose is. is is cooked hmm. uh and, and that's exactly what he did and then he would take the stand and he did and he did the same ranting and raven and, you know i'm god and all that well it took the it took the jurors i think it was like 45 minutes 48 minutes to to convict him on this case and as well it was another trial and deborah helmick and the same thing you know over there and then and uh, he was sentenced got the death penalty the thing that surprised me is he he could have taken uh lethal injection. Or the electric chair and he took the electric chair which he's such a coward and i think i think in his mind uh he, for, he and that happened 1996 is when he was executed is that he just wanted to show i think even i keep how tough he is a tough guy you know because everyone would have been on him from the prison guards to the inmates being this child killer you coward and everything so he could have taken the, the lethal injection but here he picks the uh he picks the uh the electric chair, which is pretty could be pretty brutal. Yeah,
0: I had always wondered about that <laughs> if that was kind of a last ditch effort to, you know, prove that he's insane almost, right? Like the right. the normal person would pick lethal injection, just sure. picks the, the electric chair. Not to uh to to circle back too far, but why did you think that Wayne Williams would get sick in court or, or pretend to be sick. Right. I, w- okay. What happened was,
3: is that Al Binder was the uh, prosecutor and the, uh, excuse me, defense attorney and uh, Jim Kitchens was the other defense attorney. I got to meet, uh, meet with him. And uh, they were shocked to find out that I was in the courtroom the, during the whole time. Cause they were good at in a, a, a psychologist from Arizona to testify that Williams didn't do it. Uh, it, it wasn't responsible. They were shocked. Uh, but, but anyway, so they put Williams on the stand and what they wanted to show uh, and uh, to take the stand on uh, the cross-examination, Al, Al Binder, his nickname was Jaws, uh, uh, is that, uh, look at this guy. Look at him. He looks like the Pillsbury Doughboy. Look look at his hands. Are these the hands of, of a killer of a serial killer? Look at these mm-hmm. these hands here. And, and so uh, I no one was going to buy this. Uh, the jurors, and I, I said, his only ploy here is that, is that, uh, uh, once we cross-examine him, uh, uh, he's going to have to claim that, you know, that he's you know, this sick. There's some sickness. He's going to be a sympathy ploy, and so I ended up coaching Jack Mallard, the, the prosecutor, and uh, another prosecutor Gordon Miller was there, and because <laughs> they were shocked when I said one week from today he's going to get sick in the in the courtroom, and he, and he did. And uh, I told J- Jack, I said Jack, because when you get when he takes when he gets a stance, your choice here. I said. The defense attorney grabbed his hands, you touch his hands. And then and when you touch his hands, you say in a real low voice, what was it like, Wayne? What was it like, Wayne, when you wrapped, uh, you wrapped your fingers around Terry Pugh's throat? Did you panic, Wayne? Did you panic? And he says, in a weak voice, no. And then he realized what it, he just confessed. So then he gets up. And he starts screaming and yelling. That's when that's when he, he does the the pointing, because uh, the next day uh, in the papers, an artist conception drawing, a uh, 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 artist in the courtroom had him pointing and, and saying, "I know you got this FBI profiler over here, and you got to try to get me to fit it." And uh, well, you're fitting it perfectly. You never should They never should have let him take the uh, you know, take the stand, uh, you know, at all. I got to meet the prosecutors, and Mary Welcome was one of the. Excuse me, the defense attorneys was. There was three of them there and I was hearing fiber evidence that, uh, but it was such unique, unique uh, fiber evidence. And the big expert for the bureau is a guy, uh, agent by Hal Dedman. Uh, he, he testified plus the, the GBI, but they only found it was interesting. They only found the evidence on the cases that myself and the, that Roy Hazelwood from the unit, we thought were related these uh these cases, and that was what's interesting is that's what the lab only founded on those particular uh cases you know not these other ones
0: early in your career, you spent a lot of time interviewing serial killers behind you know prison walls mm-hmm. and one thing that I found th- this is just a a a personal question here um and i've I've studied your career throughout through your books um over the years, and you know. Kemper was always somebody that you had said was one of the more interesting interviews because he was able to articulate what he did, why he did, and he was willing to speak uh, about mm. it. Now, in Kemper's case, he is one of these rare specimens that he, you know, he kills once he gets out, uh, when he gets into his early twenties, but he was already locked up at age 15 for killing his grandparents. I wonder had you and uh, Bob Ressler ever been in a situation where you were interviewing a juvenile, a serial murderer?
3: Not after, uh, only after. Um, yeah, after they were, they were convicted, a uh, mm-hmm. Monty Rissell uh, out of uh, Alex, Alexandria, who killed uh, sex workers, and he was only he was he was seen a psychologist. He was only like in his teens, and uh, the, the psychologist was giving him a, a true bill of health. This is a great guy, kind of like Kemper, and, and meanwhile psychiatrist didn't realize this guy was killing doing all these killings around the Alexandria Virginia uh, Virginia you know area uh, I have gone before parole boards uh, and uh, in fact I met just yesterday with a parole board head uh, who did the book the killer across the table a couple of books back and mm-hmm. and Joseph McGowan was one of the ones who killed a he was McGowan was a school teacher who kills a, a brownie seven years of age, going house to house, selling cookies and on this particular day she was collecting money and knocks on this guy, McGowan's door. And uh, I, they picked me because he he got to do the interview. They heard me doing like a, a talk show on a radio, but kind of like today we have podcasts. And And, uh, uh, they, and, and he said, we got to get this guy down here to uh, you know, he, this guy uh, McGowan's getting ready to get out of, uh, you know, out of prison. He served 30 years. That's the maximum sentence. So they, they, um, bring me to, uh, uh, to the to prison up in New, New Jersey, which is, which is very intimidating, <laughs> intimidating, uh, prison to begin with. And, and, and they put me in a room. I tell them what I want, how I want the room, the furniture and everything. They introduce me to him. And so I, I have to go now on a fishing and a hunt here to try to, let's see what this guy's, if he's changed, has he been, you know, rehabilitated or what's his thinking process like so i was in with him say six hours or so and then and never using always positive when you get out where are you going when you get out and he says new york and i said new york I said, man i said i was raised in new york as a kid and i said it's expensive it's expensive as hell and he and he, and he tells me about uh, he's got an ex-con up there and get a job uh, you, know, you know working working there and then I kind of segue into the crimes. I said, what happened the day when you heard the knock on the screen door? Uh, and uh, and it was uh, Joan D'Alessandro, the seven-year-old girl. And, uh, and he said, uh, my mother was away at work. And this guy's like 27 at the time. And my grandmother's upstairs sleeping. And he his, he lives in a bi-level house down in the, in the basement part, his bedroom. He says, when I looked up, I knew I was going to kill her, John. I knew I was going to kill her. And, and so he goes through all the, the details of, of what he does you know, to this child. What was so interesting, in fact, I was t- talking to this parole board head who brought me in on that case back then, uh, just yesterday, it was that I wish it was a video, could, could watch this, uh, this, this play between us because he all of a sudden what you're trying to do is you're trying to t- turn on that CD in their brain and bring him back to the crime, no matter who it is, or Charles Manson, whatever, whoever you're talking, David Berkowitz, to get him back there. And it, t- it takes a while. And it- and so he starts staring off, and it was freezing in his cell. It was-, it was cold. He is sweating. He's sweating profusely, and, it- and his chest muscles and his pecs are, t- are trembling as he's telling me everything that he's done, all the specifics, of of his crime, uh, and and he would turn around once in a while to make sure the guards weren't weren't uh, watching, uh, weren't, weren't listening in on us. He, he trusted me that that well. As a matter of fact, they would intercept the letter uh, before it was sent out to a woman that he was communicating with, and he mentions me in the letter saying, "You know, I was interviewed by this guy John Douglas, the FBI and his naval science profiling." stuff. And, and he said, it wasn't until I was well into this interview, I realized he wasn't taking notes and he didn't have any notes in front of him. He had no papers, mm-hmm. but he knew my case backwards and forwards. He knew everything about him. And see that, so it's and, and so, and one of the other things I learned about doing the interviews. You, you must maintain contact, eye contact. You deal with paranoid people. They don't trust anybody, particularly now that they're in prison. what What are you doing? What do you have the audio you know, they show the, like in Mindhunter, the audio tape the, in the beginning, the tape recording. We used it once. We used it for uh, uh, for, uh, what do you call it? What's the guy? I think the guy you just mentioned uh, a little Kemper. while ago. Yeah, Kemp, I'm sorry. You <laughs> mentioned We used it for camper. Uh but, but they're all, you know, who's going to listen to this? The warden going to hear this? So mm-hmm. you, just discard. Same thing. You take a note. Who's, who's going to see these, see these uh, notes here? And so this guy, I mean, when I, going back to McGowan, tells me everything, including, I said, well, How are you going to live when you get out and go to New York? But he, I got money, John. Got money? Why? Oh, make a license place? I have $600,000. And he's always looking back to see if the guards are listening. He, and How'd you get that? He said, well, when my mother died, I got insurance money, my grandmother, sale of the house, insurance money. And so I said, he said Where is the money? I, I put the money out of state why don't you put the money out of state so the family can't get any, any of the money. Oh, I said, oh man, you'll do great. <laughs> Six hundred grand, yeah, you'll you'll be fine when you get to New York. Well, the next day I go before the parole board uh, and and, uh, and I start telling telling them what happened and how this interview went down. They're shocked. T- I'm talking about psychologists, psychiatrists, court appointed uh, people who sit on the parole board. A lot of them aren't. It's, it's done in every state, have no uh, criminal background and in, in investigative backgrounds at all. And and they're shocked they're able to get this. And he says, and they refer to him as a pedophile. And I said, wait, no, he's not a pedophile. Wait, no, he killed a seven-year-old. No. On that particular day, a parole board, he, a 70-year-old lady could have knocked on that door and she would have died he was going to kill somebody and I gave him the different reasons what was going on in his life. You know, at at that time, he's no pedophile, he's a killer and you let him out of prison. And what's going to happen is that you have not rehabilitated him. Uh, He was never habilitated to begin with. uh, You know, and so you you didn't do anything. You didn't change anything. And all you did was put the physical body on ice for a period of 30 years, but you didn't change what's up in his brain. I, I didn't, you didn't change any of that. The fantasies, because when he was telling me about the crime, he was right down to the, the nitty gritty specifics, you know, of the crime, and no remorse at all. Not, not, not a shred of, of, of remorse came from this guy. So he'll get out, go up to New York, and things don't go well. Um, don't believe it. You think that's uh, another theory that there's burnout with these guys? There's no burnout because they, these are crimes of anger and crimes of power, and so you know that's what you have to look forward to if you you release this guy. So they end up giving him a hit. They gave him, on top of that, he gave a 30-year hit. And, of course, he appeals, appeals, appeals. But he just died. He died, I think, just last year. He died. Uh, Thank goodness they got rid of of him.
0: When a Killer Calls, A Haunting Story of Murder, Criminal Profiling, and Justice in a Small Town. Mr. Douglas, I love the new book. I know the listeners are going to love it as well. Anything else, any final words about this book, this project, before we wrap up?
3: No, I think it's it's good for the um, people that are interested in profiling and how the specifics of how you prepare and things that you can do and can't do. You know I, I try to do it with all of the books and, uh, and the next book, whatever we select, we'll we'll do it with that one. But uh, so far, it's got some very very good reviews, and I think uh, your listeners will enjoy it. And I really appreciate Nick, you having me on here too. You've oh, really man. grown over the years. Well, this had a <laughs> tremendous. Uh, following.
0: Well, thank you so
3: much for stopping by
0: and seeing us again. And I hope that you will come by and see us again on the next project.
3: Oh, I will. Thank you. Please invite me. Wonderful.
0: Thank you, Mr. Douglas.
2: Did you miss me? Of course you did, because I missed you. I missed your musk. For everything true crime, check out truecrimegarage.com. And it doesn't get much better than the OG goat talking with the colonel. Until next week, be good, be kind, and don't let her.